The message today is titled, The Lord Has Taken Away Your Sin and You Are Not Going to Die. This is following from Mike's series about the life of David, and it also follows quite well from what Ian told us last week um, as he was looking at uh, the Sermon on the Mount and talked to us about uh, lust. If you do have young kids and you don't want them to hear about David's uh, catastrophic moral failure, I I think that um, Nathan and David and David's chroniclers all do a lot of the preaching that we need to to hear. So I put my own thoughts in, but um, I think the Bible speaks a lot of it to us as it is. Um, now, I'm a teacher, and so I don't really think in terms of Sunday school, or sorry, in terms of uh, sermon points so much as I think of learning objectives. So I have three learning objectives for us this morning. Now, if, if you want to get out pen and paper, you'd be very welcome to do that. Um, it's in my classroom. There's a few points where I will ask you to participate as well. Um, you raise your hand, I call on you, then you speak, that sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> so... Uh, Learning objective number one, by the end of this morning's lesson, I hope that we will all engage, we will want to engage in regular behaviors and practices, disciplines that help us to be who God has created and called us to be. Learning objective two, that we would all know the importance of seeking to have accountability in our day-to-day lives and to make or take the steps necessary to foster the kind of relationships where that accountability can happen. And to know deep in our hearts that God forgives us of our sins when we confess them. Uh, Let's pray together. Oh Lord God, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so our first uh, class participation. Um, What are some of the stories that we've heard about the life of David so far that can help indicate some of his character. Um, what are some of the stories that we know about David that we've heard from, from Mike or that you know, not, not beyond the story of David and Bathsheba, but bef- before this point? What are some of the stories that come to mind about the life of David? There we go. Yes. Yeah, the story of David and Goliath, sure. Um, and what's something that that might tell us about his character? Or what's that? He has faith. Yeah, he had faith in God. He was, he was courageous. He had faith. He trusted in God. Sure, that story can tell us so much more, but, but it does tell us something about his character. Uh, what's another story that we might know from the life of David? Yes? Yeah, Samuel went to anoint him, and in that moment, he received that with, with grace, and the Bible says that uh, he anointed in David a man after his own heart. Yeah, sure. Uh, Somebody else? Yes. He was a shepherd, sure. Uh, Says something about his his shepherding heart for the the Israelites. Yes. Yeah. His friendship with Jonathan. He had this loving relationship with his good friend, Jonathan. He was a good friend. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, he, he, he cuts the robe when they're in the cave and, and he, he spares Saul's life. And instead of killing him, he is patient. He waits for the Lord's timing in that moment instead of killing Saul when Saul was pursuing him and trying to kill him because uh, he was going through some messed up things in his life at that moment. All right, so 
Yeah, uh, he leads his men in battle. He celebrates as the ark comes into Jerusalem. All of these things tell, tell us that David is faithful. He is courageous, honorable. He's a good friend. He is full of worship as he dances before the Lord. In David, it, he is a man after God's own heart, 1 Samuel 13, 14 says. All right, so our scripture reading, chapter 11, verse 1 in 2 Samuel, it says, In the spring... At a time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. I haven't gotten very far yet, but there's, this is a really powerful verse, and I think it brings us to that, that first learning objective. And I wonder, what are some of the things that we are doing or not doing that might allow sin to crop up in our lives. You see, it says that when kings normally go off to war, David knew that it was the time that kings go off to war. Now, I'm not saying that the war was just, that that was what he was supposed to do, but he knew he was He sent his men out. He was quite happy to send his men out to battle, but he didn't go and lead them as he normally would have. Some of the behaviors, some of the practices, some of the disciplines that have gotten him to the point in his life where he was king of Israel, he stopped doing. Some of those things are not necessarily sin yet. Like, he, it wasn't necessarily sinful for David not to go out to battle. And maybe that's true of some of our behaviors, some of our practices. On the other hand, what sort of preparations, what training, what practice could we be doing regularly that allow your life to be its, the, your best self, the you that the Lord has created and called you to be? He knew it was springtime, and this was the time when he should normally go to battle. He left his men to do the job that he normally would have done. I would argue that he had grown complacent. At some point, David started to believe that who he was on its own was enough to please God, and that some of the things that had gotten him to where he was, his faithfulness, his commitment to serve as a good king, those behaviors and practices were no longer important to him. Instead, he was going to hang back and let others do what he should be doing. I think this attitude of complacency is what allows the following moral catastrophic failure to, to occur. So what are some of the ways that you could be or should be going out to battle? Not literally, but, but instead you're hanging back, maybe complacent about some of the, the things that you've done in the past. I know that for me, I need to wake up early. That helps me to go to bed early. I know that I need to be in regular community with, with God's people. I need to be reading and speaking God's word every day. These are just some things that if I don't do them, it's not necessarily sinful but I know that they help me in, uh, lead a, a disciplined life. These are behaviors and practices that help me in my spiritual journey. So learning objective one, to engage in regular behaviors and practices, disciplines that help us to be who God has created and called us to be. Uh, Preston told me about this passage in this book by Donald Whitney. Um, called The Spiritual Disciplines of a Christian Life. And in it he says, Godly people are disciplined people. It has always been so. Call to mind some heroes of church history, and they were all disciplined people. In my own pastoral and personal Christian experience, Whitney goes on to say, 
I've never known a man or a woman who came to spiritual maturity except through discipline. So what are those behaviors for you? What habits can you do on a regular basis that will help you to be the person that God has created and called you to be? It goes on in verse 2 to say, One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. In this passage... I think you could arguably say that he is guilty of breaking six out of the ten commandments. Can you name them? Raise your hand, I call on you, then you speak. Don't, yeah, he coveted his neighbor's wife, yes. Adultery, yep. Was he honoring the Lord in this moment? Was he honoring his parents? I mean, I, Jesse didn't raise him to do that. Idolatry, maybe. He has made her out to be an idol. Theft. In this moment, David abuses his power. He oversteps his place and his position. He demonstrates a misunderstanding of the covenant he has with God to be shepherd of God's people in Israel. It's a bit ironic in light of this. Um, David was typically a self-controlled person. He was patient, right? As we said earlier, he didn't, he didn't pursue Saul. He could have killed Saul in the cave and, and didn't. He waited for the Lord to fulfill his promise of the throne. In verse 6 it says, So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. David's first thought in this was to hide his sin. He didn't waste any time. He was the king. He'd done wrong. How do I hide it? How do I hide it? It reminds me of when Adam and Eve cover themselves, their nakedness, with, with the leaves. I think in this moment we see that David feels shame. He knew what he had done is wrong, but he doesn't stop there. His spiral of sin continues. He could have turned and tried to do better in that moment but instead he tries to hide it. In verse 7 it continues, When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. He's just having a chat. Softening him. He's, there's no, he's, how's it going? He doesn't do any, there's no confession. There's a, he's just, how's Joab? How's the war going? Tell me. Let's drink. Let's eat. In verse 8, Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. A euphemism, perhaps. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept in the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house, David was told. Uriah didn't go home. So he asked Uriah, Haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah 
are staying in tents, and my commander, Joab, and my Lord's men are camped in open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will do no such thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David, at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Uriah did not go home because culturally, it would have been really dishonoring to his men. You see, what had gotten him to that point was a, was a life of discipline. Culturally, he had to show solidarity with his, with his men, and he knew that as an honorable man, he couldn't do that. And it really highlights the juxtaposition with David, that this honorable man. Uh, he was trying to get this honorable man to break his own conviction, all to hide his own sin. In verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. David knew Uriah's character was so honorable that he sent the order to kill him with him as the messenger. And I, I imagine Joab receiving this letter and opening it in front of Uriah and thinking, you just went and had dinner with the king. What happened? Right? You're, this is the, now I'm supposed to have you killed. And whatever... Joab certainly thinks that he's receiving a just order. That David knows something Joab doesn't. He doesn't need more. He's a good soldier. He's going to carry out the order, and he believes that it's a just order. In this passage, David is guilty of two more commandments. You said one earlier? Murder. And he bore false witness. He lied. Verse 16, so while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up. He may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerob-Besheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out. And when he arrived, he told David everything Joab sent sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard, about her, heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After 
The time of mourning was over. David, uh, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. At this point, David starts to think that he has gotten away with it. He probably takes a breath. It was traumatic, it was stressful, but I've covered my tracks. Or maybe he was so full of himself that he always knew he was going to get away with it and he wasn't even worried. I think either attitude could be telling here. We, we don't quite know, but at this moment, he thinks the episode is behind him. But that last sentence of, verse, of chapter 11, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. I wonder if we ever think we've gotten away with something or we think the consequences of our actions haven't been noticed by anyone. I wonder if we ever think that we've successfully covered our tracks. Chapter 12 starts, The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who has done this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. David feels so confident that he's gotten away with it that when Nathan comes to him, he doesn't even recognize that Nathan is talking to him. He is still carrying out his duties as king and as judge, He burns with anger, righteous indignation against this rich man, this thief, and what he has done. My second learning objective. I hope that we all know the importance of seeking to have accountability in our day-to-day lives and make the steps necessary to foster the kind of relationship where accountability can happen. In verse 7, it continues. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. When I was discussing this with with Preston, he, he reminded me that Nathan's rebuke of David points out something about temptation. It always involves shifting our focus from the abundance of what God has already provided to perhaps the one thing that was withheld. In verse 9, it continues, Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing this, what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite, with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. 
out of your household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. In Nathan's big reveal, he shows David that he had not gotten away with it and that his sin was known to God. He had gotten away with nothing. Then David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. David's judgment on the rich man who had taken the you lamb. Surely that man must die. And Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. David confesses and Nathan tells David that his sins are forgiven. In that moment, the full force of David's sin fell on Jesus Christ, who paid the ultimate price for our sin, for that sin. And one thing I learned from this is that David has someone in his life that he will listen to. And when Nathan speaks to him, David recognizes it as the voice of God. In the following verses, from verse 13, Nathan goes on to tell David that there will be consequences to his actions. The son that is born to Bathsheba dies, and then there is redemption as well. Her next son is Solomon, who becomes heir to the throne and king over a united um, Israel, Israelite kingdom. He's the wisest man in history, and he becomes the king who would fulfill God's promise with Israel in a way that his father couldn't because of his violent nature and the blood on his hands. I wonder, if someone is speaking into our lives and being the voice of the Holy Spirit to us, will we have the humility to recognize it? When we read this passage or hear from others, are our hearts, are our eyes and ears open enough, are our hearts soft enough to hear what God is saying to us through his word and through others? Uh, this summer I was listening to a, a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill Church. Um, it's about a megachurch pastor in, in Seattle, Washington, in the United States. Um, if you've got to spare 20 hours, it's really great. It's from uh, Christianity Today. Um, it, it's, it's really good. I listen to it while I cycle and mountain bike and stuff. And um, in one I thought was one of the most poignant parts of that, uh, that, that uh, podcast, um, a bunch of the elders come around this guy, Mark Driscoll, uh, the megachurch pastor at one point, and they, they realize that he wasn't really listening to them anymore. And he, um, so they go to him and they're like, you know, you should really get accountability from one of these other megachurch pastors maybe. And names a few of these sort of uh, celebrity pastors in, in the United States. Um, Tim Keller, John Piper, Rick Warren. You should go and seek advice or seek accountability from one of them. And Driscoll's response, this He's a young guy, and he's like, I can't, I can't get accountability from any of them. My church is bigger than all of theirs. And you're like, oh. We all need accountability. We need to find people we can invite into our lives and confess our sins to. We need people who are willing to speak into our lives and ask hard questions. I wonder, who are those people for you? I'd encourage you to cultivate the kind of relationships in your life and put time into those relationships to foster that kind of 
intimacy, that willingness to listen, and have the kind of humility necessary to receive other people's words of encouragement, of accountability, and if necessary, of rebuke with grace and open ears, with a soft heart. That type of relationship takes time to develop. It takes time to foster and nurture. We need to approach each one of those situations where rebuke might be necessary with incredible grace and humility, recognizing that none of us is someone else's judge. That position is for God alone in their life. In those relationships, we're there to speak, to listen, to encourage, and to love. We are there to show God's grace and God's love. David was quite a robust character, and Nathan hit it pretty hard. That might not be the way we should do it all the time. On the other hand, if there is something happening where there is abuse of power, where there is a harmful or damaging relationship or behavior that is not just damaging and harmful to one person but to others, we must also have the courage to speak to that person. And if it's truly harmful, we may need to speak to church elders, authorities, police, and do what's necessary to stop a harmful behavior. We have a responsibility to do what is within our power to stop it. And David does not shy away from accountability and rebuke. He not only accepts it, but he writes the 51st Psalm, and this story becomes a part of our shared history and tradition. He was king. He could have done a couple different things. He could have just not cared. I'm the king. I can do what I want. He could have also had the chroniclers strike this whole thing from the record, and we would not know about it today. Instead, David writes this, and his people sing it in his lifetime. Psalm 51 starts off, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is, ever, is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, 
in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Now there's a lot to unpack in this passage. It is rich with passion and theology. And one thing I'll leave for another day is why David thought he could say that his sin was against God and God alone. I'm not sure Bathsheba, Uriah, Joab, or Nathan would necessarily agree. Mike can deal with that. But David's sin wasn't just uncovered to him, right? It was, he uncovered it for his whole nation and it became part of the story of Israel, a story that we can all read about. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Learning objective three, I know uh, to know deep in our hearts that God forgives us of our sins when we confess them. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not with us, in us. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Where we fall short, and we will and we do, where our lives do not reflect all that God has commanded us to do, Jesus has stepped in and done it for us. Jesus has lived the life that we failed to live. And in God's mercy and his love for us has provided us with hope, and grace in Jesus Christ. God has forgiven our sins because of what Jesus has done on the cross. We are washed clean by Jesus' sacrifice, and Jesus has conquered death and has been raised from the dead, and it is through faith in Jesus that we rise with him and have new life in his kingdom as co-heirs. This is a powerful story, and I think, it's, it's, I think one of the reasons we like it, I like it, it's a good story, is because it really demonstrates God's amazing grace. Here's this guy who breaks eight out of the ten commandments and he confesses after rebuke. It's not like he does it on his own. But he confesses and receives forgiveness because of God's amazing grace. So here's the three learning objectives now. God might have spoken to you in a different way. I read a ton of scripture, three chapters, uh, two and a half, and you might have three other takeaways, but as I was preparing, these were the three that, that came to mind for me. I hope that we will engage in regular behaviors and practices, disciplines that help us to be who God has created and called us to be. I hope that we will know the importance of seeking to have accountability in our day-to-day lives to make the steps necessary to foster the kind of relationships where accountability can happen, and I hope that we will know deep, deep in our hearts that God forgives us of our sins, that he loves us. Let's pray. Father God, you are good, you are holy, you are worthy of our praise. I pray that that you would speak to each of us through your word this morning, continue to work on our hearts as we draw near to you. I pray that this story that you've told us will have an impact that it will impact our behavior, our day-to-day lives, that we will desire to engage in behaviors, that we will seek out those relationships, and that we will feel deep in our hearts of your love and know that we are forgiven. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.